You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yo, if you like what I do here at the Redacted History Podcast, consider supporting me further by going over to my Patreon. You can find that linked in the show notes below. It's a cold October night, Harper's Ferry, Virginia, 1859. As the town lay asleep, 19 men armed to the brim marched through the night's mist led by a skinny 59-year-old white man named John Brown. He had a bush of gray hair and no teeth in his mouth. Among them were Brown's youngest sons, Watson and Oliver, a fugitive slave from Charleston, South Carolina, an African-American man who was a student at Oberlin College, a pair of Quaker brothers from Iowa who had abandoned their pacifist beliefs to follow John Brown, a former slave from Virginia and men from Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, and Indiana. And they were here, together, to ignite the war on slavery. This is the story of John Brown and the raid on Harper's Ferry. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. It takes a special level of courage, dedication, and conviction to have a plan and attempt to execute that plan even though it's likely to fail. The 19th century as a whole was a very chaotic and vitriolic time for the United States of America. We had possibly the worst string of presidents, ranging from Andrew Jackson and his fervor for ethnic cleansing and genocide of the indigenous people, all the way down to James Buchanan, who saw the nation toting the fine line of insurrection, secession, and civil war, and he chose to do nothing. And then we had the issue of slavery. There are so many ways to contextualize the legacy of shadow slavery in our country's history, but the simple fact is that it was an insidious monstrosity which built a booming Southern economy while stifling the black community for generations to come. And I have had many a debate with people in the comment sections on every social media platform where the rebuttal was, well, the white people who owned slaves were doing it because it was with the times. These weren't inherently bad people. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce you to John Brown. John Brown was born on May 9, 1800 in a farmhouse in Litchfield County, Connecticut, and was the fourth of eight children born to Owen and Ruth Brown. His father and grandfather had fought for America's freedom in the Revolutionary War in the late 1700s, but ending up not having much to show for it. And this was due to something called the Man-Land Crisis, where land allotments were given in subdivisions to settling families, which meant that firstborn sons were not inheriting enough land to turn any kind of profit. This caused the Browns to move to Ohio, my home state, in 1805, where Owen Brown found success in the tanning business and opened a tannery of his own. In 1820, John Brown, at the age of 20, married a girl named Dianth Lusk, who was the 19-year-old daughter of their housekeeper, and they had six children rather quickly. 
John was incredibly stern and rearing with his children and was quoted as raising them with a Bible in one hand and a rod in the other. For example, on one occasion, after punishing his firstborn son, John Jr., with lashes from a nicely prepared blue beach switch, he gave his son the whip, took off his shirt, and insisted that the boy beat him in return in order that he might learn that the innocent should suffer for the collective guilt of sinful humankind. Keep that quote in your mind for later. Diane's health would go on to suffer and she would die giving birth to a seventh child in 1832. Now at this time, America was experiencing something called the Second Great Awakening. This was a period where westward expansion was the main priority of the country, and with this also came the task of expanding slavery. Juxtaposed to the Industrial Revolution, many Americans flocked to evangelical religions and faiths, but John Brown kept his father's faith, Puritan, which dealt a lot in self-righteousness and influenced his abolitionist beliefs. John Brown, still devout in his religion, moved to Franklin Mills, Portage County, Ohio in 1835. He raised cattle and sheep for five years and was financially ruined by the poor economic times of 1839. But during all of this, his hatred for slavery only grew stronger. Now, to understand why John Brown and Harper's Ferry happened, we have to understand his role in Bleeding Kansas. Allow me to give you a small synopsis. Bleeding Kansas was a mini civil war that took place between 1854 and 1861. This conflict took place between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces following the creation of the new territory of Kansas by way of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So basically, Kansas became a battleground over the future of slavery in the United States. Sporadic outbursts of violence and guerrilla warfare occurred between pro- and anti-slavery forces in late 1855 and early 1856. In a sharp escalation of that violence, a pro-slavery group stormed the Free State stronghold of Lawrence on May 21, 1856, destroying printing presses, looting homes and stores, and setting fire to a hotel. In response to this sack of Lawrence, as it became to be known, the abolitionist John Brown marched through Potawatomi Valley in Kansas Territory on May 24th along with seven men, including four of his sons. Determined to confront pro-slavery settlers, the group dragged five men from their homes along Potawatomi Creek and brutally killed them. Now, John Brown's actions could be seen by some as chaotic and without real plan, but he and his family would probably tell you differently. His second wife, Mary, gave an interview saying that John had basically been planning for decades for how he would be the one to free the slaves. According to John's biographer, James Redpath, for 30 years, he secretly cherished the idea of being the leader of a servile insurrection. The American Moses, predestined by omnipotence to lead the servile nations in our southern states to freedom. Now, I don't really know how to feel about that quote in particular. Sounds kind of white savior-like, but nonetheless, John was strong in his convictions and was going to free the enslaved, even if it killed him. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now, let's take a look at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. John Brown wanted to use this opportunity in October of 1859 to lead an armed revolt against the institution of slavery, and he picked the armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia to do so. One slavery insurrection, one mass rising up of enslaved people and abolitionists could really spark something. And it kind of sparked the Civil War, so John Brown wasn't wrong. John Brown's principal reason for choosing this point for his grand master plan was threefold. Firstly, the presence of a large slave population. There was a population of 2,500 black people there, and about half of them were free. So if I'm John Brown, I'm thinking that I can not only free the enslaved people there and then get the free black folk to flock to my side, getting over 2,000 vengeful and galvanized people to flock to your side is not a bad idea. Secondly, the proximity of the Blue Ridge range of mountains with their rocky recesses and densely wooded slopes would provide comparative safety from pursuit and better enable him to protect himself from attack. And lastly, the location at Harper's Ferry of the U.S. Armory and Arsenal, plus the Lower Hall Island Rifle Factory, held many thousand stands of arms without sufficient guard to protect them. Thus, what began as a plan to slowly deprive the South of its black labor force had become a scheme to awaken the nation to the evils of slavery via one violent and audacious raid. Harper's Ferry really held everything that they needed. It was the original intention of John Brown to launch his raid on Harper's Ferry on the night of October 24, 1859. But because a local woman had spotted black men at a nearby farm, he thought his intentions might be exposed. He ordered the attack to go ahead on October 16th, a whole week early. This last-minute change of plan was to have disastrous consequences on the outcome of the operation, as according to James Redpath, his biographer, other volunteers in Canada, Kansas, New England, and the neighboring free states intent on being involved were un unable to do so on this earlier date. Abolitionist Richard Hinton was in nearby Chambersburg at a black-operated underground railroad post, awaiting word to join John Brown, while Harriet Tubman was trying to raise recruits for the venture elsewhere. Convinced that he had sufficient numbers to achieve his objective, Brown waited until after nightfall on October 16, 1859, and issued the fateful order. Men, get on your arms. We will proceed to the ferry. October 16th. 1859. The night was misty and brisk. The raiders marched towards Harper's Ferry, illuminated by the dim moonlight. The raiders carried 40 rounds of ammunition fastened to their jackets and pikes to be distributed to the freed slaves as a means of defending themselves. They first approached and subdued an unarmed guard named Bill Williams. Brown ordered two men to guard the Shenandoah Bridge, while he and other men went to seize the armory. Bill Williams, the guard, recounted that John Brown looked him in the eye and said, I came here from Kansas, and this is a slave state. 
I want to free all the Negroes in this state. I have possession now of the United States Armory, and if the citizens interfere with me, I must only burn the town and have blood. Now, let's look at the breakdown of this plan of attack. They would approach Harper's Ferry at about 10.30 p.m. and tear down the telegraph wires along the railroad tracks on both sides of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Bridge, and then lead a march across the bridge. They would then capture the watchman at the end of the bridge on the Harper's Ferry side of the bridge. Then, two guards would guard the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Bridge. John Brown would then take other members of the group to capture the armory with the weapons and the prisoners would then be held in the fire engine house. They would then occupy the U.S. arsenal and seize the Shenandoah Bridge. Then, members of the group would march west of Harper's Ferry and capture local slaveholders. Then, they would use the free black folk to return to a local farmhouse and restock their weapons and escape back across the bridge with freed slaves and firearms. The next morning on October 17th, the town would then be burned down by the raiders as the raiders withdrew back across the bridge for the last time into the mountains. This sounds like a great plan, right? Yeah, it actually was a good plan, but there were too many ways that things could go wrong. Once the group had gotten into Harper's Ferry, they captured two watchmen, like I said earlier. One of the watchmen would later recount, one fellow took me. They all gathered about me and looked me in the face. I was nearly scared to death for so many guns about. John Brown and the group seized the fire engine house where they left the prisoners and would then leave all future prisoners. By 11 p.m., all of the key points in Harper's Ferry had been captured and everything had been going to plan. At about 1.30 a.m., an African-American porter named Hayward Shepard stepped out of the railroad office to investigate the absence of the watchmen that were supposed to be on the bridge. He approached the bridge to see what was going on, and one of the insurrectionists handed him a rifle and told him to guard the bridge in the name of freedom. He refused and turned to go back to his office and was then fatally shot in the back, thus becoming the first casualty of the raid on Harper's Ferry. Then things got worse. The eastbound Baltimore and Ohio through express train approached Harper's Ferry at about 1.20 a.m. on October 17th. The conductor and baggage master of the train were made aware of the situation in Harper's Ferry. They marched over to the armory where they found John Brown. They were alerted of what Brown and the insurgents wanted, and John Brown said, we want liberty. The grounds, bridge, and town are in our hands. John then made perhaps the most fatal error of the entire event. It also didn't help that the black man that was earlier killed was a railroad porter, so they were immediately made aware of him being shot. But John basically told the conductor, look, we don't want any problems. We're just going to do our thing. You'll go on about your way. And this was bad because the whole point of the raid was to gain hostages and weapons and escape cleanly. But by letting the Through Express know your plans and leave, risked word of the insurrection reaching Washington, D.C. before the plan was fully executed. And as soon as the train left Harper's Ferry and reached a neighboring city, they sent a telegraph telling everything. And as the morning came, things just got worse and worse. As the morning comes, there are about four to five hostages that they're holding in the Armory Fire Engine House. At about 7 a.m., local townspeople begin firing on the raiders. At 10 a.m., local militia units take positions surrounding Brown's men, cutting off escape routes. Uh, one of Brown's men, a former enslaved black man named Dangerfield Newby, is shot and killed. 
Another raider named William Thompson is captured under a white flag when Brown was actually asking for a truce. At noon, Brown sent two more of his men with another truce flag, and they were killed. At the armory, militia men freed most of the hostages and forced Brown and his men back into the engine house. The energy in Harper's Ferry quickly turned against the insurgents, and they became too hard to contain. By this point, they had blocked off the bridge and all escape routes. John Brown was trapped. Once the sun set, hundreds of excited militiamen and townspeople jammed the streets of Harper's Ferry, and a group of the raiders actually escaped into the hills, but this group didn't include John Brown. During this day earlier, which is October 17th, President James Buchanan called out a detachment of U.S. Marines that were at the Washington Naval Yard, and Buchanan ordered Colonel Robert E. Lee, yes, that Robert E. Lee, to command the group, and he took a special train to Harper's Ferry. Colonel Robert E. Lee and his 90 Marines proceeded to knock down the door of the engine house with a ladder. The Marines, with a little conflict, rushed in and semi-peacefully took down and captured the insurgents in all of three minutes, thus ending a 32-hour raid. The hostages were safely escorted out, and John Brown and his men were arrested. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 16 people were killed in the raid, including 10 of Brown's men. John Brown and his fellow captured insurgents were taken to jail in Charlestown, Virginia, on October 19th. Faced with charges of murder, conspiring with enslaved people to rebel, and treason against the state of Virginia, John's Brown trial began October 27th and lasted just five days. Jurors took only 45 minutes to reach a decision, guilty of all charges. On November 2nd, Brown was sentenced to hang on the gallows. All six of Brown's captured men were tried and hanged five escaped. John Brown was executed December 2, 1859. His wife Mary took his body home to North Elba, New York for burial. The case of John Brown is an interesting one, to say the least. Everyone knows him for the insurrection at Harper's Ferry, the raid that helped instigate the Civil War. But the funny thing is, he failed. For all intents and purposes and considerations, John Brown failed. The raid at Harper's Ferry was already a steep endeavor with a very small margin of error, and John Brown made several costly errors. He committed a huge error by permitting the Baltimore and Ohio through Express to continue on its way to Baltimore, thereby ensuring that the alarm was raised in the federal capital. Furthermore, the quick thinking of residents to send help to neighboring communities is what caused more attention to be drawn and for the raiders at Harper's Ferry to be boxed in. There was a black porter, Hayward Shepard, who was killed, prompted many black enslaved people to not rally to the cause. And this was immediately diverting from the plan because there was a strict rule that civilians should not be harmed. There was also a couple of occasions where John Brown and the Raiders could have escaped with some hostages and enslaved people, but John Brown refused and negotiations kept coming to a stalemate. 
However, many historians look at Harper's Ferry and look at it as a major catalyst that sparked Southern secession, which ultimately led to the start of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery in 1865. A slave revolt was a pro-slaver's worst fear. A slave revolt led by a white man was their biggest fear. John Brown appealed to the Northerners who immediately rallied to this cause. They admired his bravery, not only for the raid, but the attitude he had after the raid, reading his letters from jail and the courage he showed during his trial. There were commemorative church services held for him in cities in Ohio. Cleveland Plain Dealer reported that a church held a sermon entitled The Martyrdom of John Brown on December 2nd, where there was a moment of silence held for some 1,400 people. In Plymouth and New Bedford, Massachusetts, the bells were tolled at noon in memory of John Brown. In Albany, New York, town officials ordered the firing of a 100-gun salute. Following a public prayer meeting, held in the National Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Inquirer reported on December 3rd that black abolitionist Robert Purvis declared, today a prophetic inspiration comes from the scaffold of Virginia, where now is sacrificed the great apostle of liberty, the Jesus of the 19th century. And this went on in cities across the North and the Northeast. Harper's Ferry had a major effect on the South as well. There had always been a long-standing belief that there was a Northern plot against slavery. There had been raised suspicions and anxieties during the aftermath of the raid, reports of upticks in arson around Charleston and Harper's Ferry. Southern states immediately prepared and re-prepared and strengthened their positions in the case of more raised-up abolitionists. No matter how you see John Brown, you gotta admit that he was indeed committed to the cause, and you could even argue that he began the war that ended slavery. Until next time. Go subscribe to the podcast YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash redacted history. You can find that in the show notes below. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 